Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're joined by my good friend, Jim Harbison. We've known each other for over 30 years, and I'm excited to talk to him about his new book, A Disgusting Supermarket of Death. It comes out on Marcosia. It's just been released on Amazon, and it's a real interesting entry into the horror genre. We're going to talk a little bit about the horror genre itself, and we're going to talk about Jim's writing process. Jim, welcome aboard. Great to be here. So, Jim, we were talking before we started recording a little bit about your background. Maybe take us through a little bit about what ignited the fire and your love of horror. First, let me say that I'm extraordinarily grateful to you and to our publisher, Marcosia, for taking another chance on me for this new book and for taking a chance on us for our graphic novel, Stay Alive, which we published last year. A super fun project. We could talk about that later on in the podcast, but I wanted to get that out there. Cool. So, My childhood, in some ways, was defined by horror. I'm not sure why or how. I just always loved the macabre. I remember in third grade, I had to fill out some kind of questionnaire about who I was, what I wanted to do. I don't know why. It was probably entering into the self-actualization process of education. (laughs) Anyway, I said, more than anything, I love to watch murder mysteries on television. And I love horror, too. I love horror. I love crime. I love science fiction. And what is loosely called or collectively called speculative fiction. And the first horror movie I fell in love with was Halloween 2, the John Carpenter sequel to Halloween that came out in 1981. And it's about this homicidal maniac named Michael Myers who's trying to kill his sister. And in the course of doing so, he hunts her down at a local hospital, dispatching the entire staff and then chasing her through the hospital where she keeps running into his various victims. And it was just for a couple reasons. It was compelling. First of all, because Michael Myers never speaks. And as John Carpenter said, he's really scary because he doesn't run like a creature. He walks at you like a man and he never runs. He just walks ominously, consistently, almost inevitably. Like no matter what you do, the boogeyman is always going to be there coming for you. And the fact that he would take a place of safety and healing and turn it into a charnel house was all the more compelling. And so that and another project that came out later the same year, Creepshow, and I read the graphic novel before I ever saw the movie. It was Stephen King's homage to the EC comics of the 1950s, Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, Haunt of Fear. And in it, there were five horror stories wonderfully rendered by Bernie Wrightson. And my favorite was the third story called The Crate. And it's about this janitor at a university who finds this crate marked Antarctic Expedition, 1898. And so he calls this anthropology professor he knows to investigate. And the anthropology professor meets the janitor and then brings along one of his grad students in a lab and... They open the crate partially and discover there's some kind of man-eating creature inside. And the creature eats the janitor and then eats the grad student. 
And the professor runs in a hysterical state back to the house of his friend, played by Hal Holbrook, who's an English professor. And Hal Holbrook gets him to drink a bunch of whiskey with some Nembutal or something in it. So he passes out. And then he takes Hal Holbrook's character, takes his horribly oppressive wife, played by Adrian Barbeau, who incidentally was married to John Carpenter, the guy who created Halloween and directed the first and second films and feeds her to the creature and then cleans up the whole mess and drops the crate into a deep water quarry. And then he tells his friend about it and his friend's like, your secret is safe with me. So it ends with them playing chess or something, you know, it's a perfect <laughs> crime. Other horror films growing up that had a real impact on me were Stuart Gordon's reanimator in 1985, which was a brilliant adaptation of the HP Lovecraft, Herbert West reanimator stories, and George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, the 1968 classic, which actually caused me to vomit because of the scene where the zombies are eating the remains of the young couple that perishes in their flaming truck cab. Return of the Living Dead, also 1985, like Reanimator, which is a horror comedy rendering of sort of an unofficial sequel to Night of the Living Dead. And then the other influence that really cemented my love of speculative fiction was my introduction, EC Comics, which I started reading in 1987, Weird Science, Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, Haunt of Fear, Weird Fantasy, 87 through 88. I just absorbed all this stuff. It was so great. And it lit my mind on fire in a good way. And Ever since then, I've just been dedicated to dystopian or horrific perversions of reality, preferably ones that are wrought by the best intentions, because those are the most deliciously ironic. Well, and so we've known each other since high school, and we actually worked on a project called Magazine X Journal of the Macabre, which was a lot of our short stories that we tried to write. Very clear to me that you're a much better writer than I am. <laughs> and which is where I first saw your imagination put down on paper. And as we went off to college and sort of went our own ways, career-wise, staying in touch, of course, how did that background from the collegiate experience and then your grad school experience, what did you take from that? Because I think what comes out in your work is that it's a mind that's had a lot of exposure to a lot of very broad liberal arts concepts and the law, lots of justice, and that that's been stitched together with the comic book background, the horror background, the sci-fi background, and sort of the realization of that, or at least some of the realization of that, comes in the new book. Yeah, that's a good summary. I studied classics and English literature mostly in college. And what I love about the classics, I read Latin literature, was that the ancient Romans had all kinds of wonderfully deviant ideas and sensibilities, and they weren't imprisoned by Judeo-Christian moral concepts the way Western civilization used to be, and still is to a certain extent. And so they would write about things in dactylic hexameters. They'd write smutty poems in dactylic hexameters, and I got college credit for reading them and translating them, which always struck me as delightful because it's like, oh, it's the classics. And it's deeply subversive in the context of the West, or rather Christendom. And that was part of the appeal. And ironically, I went to theological school and studied historical theology and ethics. 
And that kind of fast track, not fast track, but amplified my love of horror because to me, there are three essential sources of horror. Well, maybe more, but the three that really speak to me. One, there is a creature with godlike powers that is not benevolent, or at least less benevolent than the God of Abraham. Or two, there is a person, and that person can be yourself, driven to do terrible things for no particular reason. There was a show on CBS called Criminal Minds, and it was inspired, I'm sure, distantly by The Silence of the Lambs. With that wonderful film, it's the 30th anniversary of that film. Everybody knows what that is. Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter, the psychopathic cannibalistic murderer who the FBI consults to catch an Ed Gein-like serial killer. And there was a craze in basically hunting serial killers in popular culture through the 90s and the aughts. And in Criminal Minds, it was a well-done show, but I guess from a horror perspective, what disappointed me was at the end, there was almost always an explanation for why the killer did what the killer did. And as you observed recently, horror, in order really to be horrific and not just to be like an aberration of human behavior that's sort of statistically detectable or accountable, is something that just is so unpredictable, irrational, that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try to protect against it, you can't. It's like the boogeyman. And there's a reason parents would use the boogeyman to scare their children into proper behavior. It's because the boogeyman can't be reasoned with. It's like the Terminator. He can't be reasoned with. All he does is he's just programmed to kill. That's all he does. Or terrify or both. Well, one of the things, too, is an element of horror that I enjoy is when there is no explanation. And well, that's exactly what I'm saying. You may never know why. And that ultimately is extremely unsettling. We always want closure. We always want some sort of rationale for things. And when that doesn't exist, the horrific acts or the tragedy that's caused when it's unexplained, that's something we don't process well. The third aspect of horror that bothers me, and it's more political, is the idea of mob justice, which we touch on and stay alive, or the idea that groups of people can get together and do terrible things to one another and think that it's perfectly appropriate to do so. And one of the things that, besides practicing criminal and civil rights law, that really clued me into this was the character of Judge Dredd, which came out in 1978, created by John Wagner and Carlos Esker, I believe, the artist. And Judge Dredd is a lawman who is judge, jury, and executioner in a post-apocalyptic future in which, after nuclear war, the surviving populations of the world live in these massive megalopoli or megalopolises called megacities. And unemployment is 99%, and people just wander around possibly getting into trouble. And so the judges police them in a state of essentially a martial law. And they will find someone, convict them on the spot, and then sentence them. And often the sentence is death. And Judge Dredd will do this no matter how obscenely unjust the law is. He's like the Terminator, except he's a law enforcement agent. And the idea that people will follow the rules because they are the rules, this completely positivistic idea that authority for everything doesn't come from any larger source than the state, is really terrifying because then. 
as long as people vote it into existence, it can happen, and it has the authority of law. There's no alternative moral basis for judging the actions of people. And so, I mean, obviously, if you believe God wants you to do something, you can do equally terrible things. But the idea that the government can just exterminate people and make it lawful is also one of the, I mean, the 20th century testifies to the fact that that's horrifying and really scary. So it's, and in many ways, it's somehow super rational, even though in some ways it's super irrational because it's based on a constructed morality that's utterly alien to an idea of a transcendent one. A transcendent one at least arguably makes some kind of sense. Not always, but it takes better into account the human condition than, and human nature than some set of rules that we're going to kill you if you don't follow. Well, one of the things, too, that's frightening now is that the line between sort of rational administration of society and a bit of an unwind can be really thin. It can be a fragile system. I'm sure there are a lot of people today on both sides of the political spectrum who would say, geez, there are whole blocks of people for whom sort of a move into irrational adherence to certain dogmas or fact patterns, real or perceived, that that's becoming more commonplace. And maybe the, the impact of social media, it's, et cetera, that that amplifies that. And so that, and when we were talking about stay alive, I think we touched on those types of concepts, not necessarily from a political standpoint, but definitely from a background where people will seek out their own truths and their own preferences and will act on them. And that's something that's tough to control. Conversation is civilization. And what's really strange about social media is that it looks like conversation, but often it isn't. It's just posturing with words. People are talking past each other or dismissive of one another, but they're not necessarily interacting in any kind of productive way. And so people retreat into sort of tribal identities because it gives them a sense of identity. I mean, one of the problems with modern life, modernity and its various deconstructive consequences, is that people feel naked and afraid in the universe. There's no necessarily overarching meaning. There's no assurance that good things will come. It's just the state of nature in some ways. I mean, it's not the state of nature clearly envisioned by or envisioned starkly by uh, Hobbes, but it's still me against the world. And there's a Tupac quote for you. And <laughs> you snuck one in. So human beings are built to seek order and safety. I mean, it's not only because it's a necessity of life, but also I think it's a necessity of proper psychological well-being. But the problem is, is that if they get too, quote unquote, secure, the mind starts to eat itself. And so we're sort of delivering ourselves from calamity of one kind into calamity of another. And we're so, I want to say spoiled, but I'm not sure if that's it. We don't live in a world anymore where, you, at least in the United States, in the first world, where you have to be able to get along with people in order to survive. Everyone is sort of a, at least they believe they're a self-sufficient entity and therefore deserve respect. And it's very difficult for people to concede that they need other people. And it sows the seeds for horror stories. Yeah, exactly. You've laid the foundation for a lot of wreckage mentally. That's the base upon which people do bad things. And that's how we came to Stay Alive. So Jim, summarize for us a little bit what happens in Stay Alive. Well, Stay Alive is our attempt to hold a mirror up to 
our erratic society and the way social media deforms people and their motives. And the premise is that there is this internet phenomenon known as youkill.com that allows anyone anywhere to nominate anyone else to be murdered. And the purveyors of it, this shadowy consortium of investors who are never revealed, submits every nominee to a popular vote. And whoever gets the most votes, they then murder. And the face of Ukill is this EC Comics-like narrator or host called Knox. Knox is Latin for night. And he's like the crypt keeper, the vault keeper, or the old witch in the EC Comics. And he has a comedic banter about what's happening, comments on the murders as they accumulate. And he's a guy in a three-piece suit with a medieval plague doctor mask. And what happens is there's a failing Hollywood starlet named Jane Morgan who's trying to come up with some way to restart her career. And so she gets word from her agent that a network is trying to come up with some kind of reality TV show around the U-Kill phenomenon and tells her that if she can get atop the list, she might be able to star in this reality show. So what Jane does is she thwarts the last wish uh, home run of this kid with terminal cancer at a pro baseball game by tagging him out at home plate while wearing the opposing team's mascot uniform. And the kid just loses it. And the crowd rains trash down upon her. And within, I think, 24 hours, she's you kills number one. And she becomes the star of the show. And she therefore becomes the target of all sorts of public hatred and different attempts on her life. And it's just a meditation upon the willingness of people to degrade themselves for fame and celebrity, and also the willingness of society to really hate someone, the ability of hate to focus people in a mob with a kind of terrifying unanimity, even in a society that supposedly is disposed to individual identities as ours. And like I said, that's like the third thing that really terrifies me, the ability of people to forswear their judgment and rationality to join into a hate parade. Well, and so we published that at basically at the beginning of 2020, right before the gates came down with the pandemic, and we've gotten a good response from it. What was it that drove the concept for the new book? And we'll get into some details on that, but you've had a collection of ideas going where were you in terms of writing it at that point, and when did you start really pushing? Well, I wrote the stories over the course of about four years, Catch as Catch Can. I wrote the majority of them in the spring and summer of 2018. And at that point, I was superintending the last days of my poor Basset Hound, Hunter. And I think that the dread of that helped contribute to my creation of the different characters and stories. It provided at least some kind of way of, for me to focus all the negative energy. And I have lots of interesting, or at least they're interesting to me, ideas for stories. But I also tend to prefer to write small. I find that many novels just don't hold my attention unless the writer is extraordinarily gifted. But even then, even if the writer is extraordinarily gifted, like, say, William Faulkner, Unless he's writing about something that's interesting, I guess that, and this may be anathema to students of literature, but I don't care about, oh no, well, I'm having a midlife crisis because 
of my family issues dating back to my alcoholic parent and all that stuff really bores me. And I don't know why. Maybe I am stuck in a perpetual adolescence of sort of people call them lowbrow. I prefer imaginative orientations and tastes. And so I would rather tell stories of high adventure or terror or crime than listen to people talk about their problems. And even if they're well-written, it just doesn't interest me. I'm not saying that it isn't worthy literature, worthy of study. It just doesn't interest me. One of my favorite prose stylists is James Elroy, closely followed. Well, he and Raymond Chandler, and they write crime stories, and they're just both brilliantly gifted, and they write about things that interest me. They also write about the human condition, but in a way that it's in a plot or it's in a delivery device, for lack of a better term, that's intrinsically interesting, not just like, oh, well, I'm going through my life and my children hate me and I haven't reconciled with my father. And it's fine if you like that. It's just never held my attention. And so one thing that I think is interesting about the way you formatted the book and it speaks to your sort of, I'll call it colloquially, your machine gun approach. You've got 22 stories and they're each completely independent of each other and they're short. And so they're like shots with no chaser. And for those who are uninitiated in the horror genre, I mean, they are pure. <laughs> and it's something where I think what you describe is in many ways very horrific and scary, but it also calls on a sense of humor oftentimes. And it's a purposeful thing. And I think it adds to your work where you're able to inject humor into awful circumstances. And maybe talk a little bit about that and why that might be important not to just be completely nihilistic. Well, yeah. I mean, who wants to read completely nihilistic? It can be interesting, but generally speaking, completely nihilistic works only in maybe a one-panel cartoon. And even then, you can't read more than five of those without being sort of pushed into too dark a place. And so, if for no other reason, being completely nihilistic isn't that artistically interesting. It's more like a really good one-liner or a joke. It's horrible, but too much of it is too much, and it's almost too much in and of itself. And so if you just want to tell a horrible story where terrible things happen to people who really don't deserve them or really aren't that interesting, it's like a kind of pornography, but it's not even interesting pornography. It's boring pornography. So what I try to do is write stories that at least have, like the old DC comics, they have an ironic twist ending, usually, or at least an interesting ending. And I tend to write terrible things but with an ironic comic distance, almost didactic, often didactic. But that at least filters what's happening through a medium that makes it more tolerable. And I do, like you said, it's like a shot, no chase of that. That's how I prefer it. And I'm working on a series of novellas right now. And I can't imagine writing at least a horror story that's more than maybe 100 pages, because after that, horror and comedy alike. I read something years ago that said the comedy scripts tend to be, screenplays tend to be shorter than others. And I understand why, because you're dealing with something where brevity is usually a really, really good way. It's the optimal way of delivering your product. Dorothy Parker would agree with you. If, uh, brevity is the soul of wit. If, if the joke goes on too long, it's not going to be funny. And it relies on a tension that cannot be strain too much. And so I think that's part of the reason why I tend to write short, because the best comedy and the best horror tend to come short. And one of the things I tend to avoid, not always, but 
often in my writing is the slow boil because that just doesn't interest me. I mean, not that it can't be done well. Look at The Shining. Look at The Exorcist. Those are both really excellent movies, but they're more slow boil. And my preference is for bang, 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 just escalating terror. And once you're hooked, you can't let go. I mean, with slow boil to me, there's an easy in and out. You're not captivated necessarily. You can be, but it's not. it doesn't grab you by the lapels and require that you continue watching. And I prefer that. Like I said, maybe it's a poor habit of mind bred of too much television and video gaming when I was a kid. But for better or for worse, that's how I prefer to express myself. Having read the book and enjoying it, you've got 22 stories that pack a lot of interesting concepts and not just dystopian future worlds, but current situations, which people, if they stick around and sort of put their head into it well, there are things that they're going to be able to relate to. One of my favorites is a bit of a dystopian world, and that's the Peak Bliss story, which is, I believe, your last one. (laughs) I commented, gosh, I wish it were up further. It's that good. Tell me a little bit about what you were thinking about that one in particular. I was thinking about a couple concepts. One, Isaac Asimov's rules, I think from iRobot, about his essential rules of robotics, that robots exist for the betterment of mankind and should never, ever harm people or cause them to be harmed, that there is an essentially benevolent function and purpose to robots. And the other thing I was thinking of was there is this wonderful episode of The Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone, Rod Serling, 1950s, 60s, about this guy, this career criminal who gets killed in the line of duty, let's say, burgling somebody or robbing somebody. And he ends up in what looks like a paradise. He ends up in a casino where he always wins at gambling. He always gets the beautiful woman. And eventually he realizes that this life of pleasure is actually a prison. And he goes to the guy that sort of was his St. Peter when he first entered this world. And he said, I thought I was in heaven, not the other place. He realizes he's never going to leave. And the guy says, this is the other place. (laughs) The idea that you could be in a, I don't think I came up with this expression, someone else must have, a prison of pleasures, where you live in a perpetually horizontal state. You never go forward. You just go further and further to the side, seeking new ways to get the same old high. It's like a drug addiction. And so in the story, human beings have been completely isolated from one another by robots who service all of their needs and all of their pleasures. And they're never allowed to interact with other people or other living creatures because the despair that ensues from watching them die or having them die is harmful to the people. So the robots in a programming flaw think that giving people relentless hedonic pleasure will make them happy and fulfill their mandate that they protect people and never harm them. And it's ironic because they are harming. And so the guy at plot point one, I think it is, the guy reveals he wants to commit suicide because he's in despair. He's dead to joy. And so the robots spend the rest of the story explaining to him that he's reached a state of peak bliss in which his brain is essentially burned out on pleasure and that the only way to fix this is to erase his memory so that he can start to experience pleasures again so it's sort of a kind of a more humane lobotomy 
as I was reading it, it thrusts you into the future, but it's something that given where we are today and everything from your Oculus goggles to the development of outboarding your thought processes and memory, it strikes somewhat close to home. And it also reminds me of a Robert Nozick. Robert Nozick was this famous libertarian philosopher at Harvard. He was like the anti-John Rawls. And he came up with a thought experiment that said, what would happen if you could live in a machine for your entire life and your machine would put you in a constant state of delusional pleasure? Basically, you lived in the matrix, except you were happy all the time. And then you would expire, die within the machine, and it would, I don't know if I'm interpolating here, but I guess it would, you would die, you'd spend the rest of your life in the machine. And the question was, would this be ethical for people to do this, to be completely indifferent to society, just to live in a fantasy world? And there's no clearly good answer to that. It depends on your frame of reference. To me, it seems like a kind of a horror movie, because you're enslaved to yourself. I mean, a society that privileges pleasure above everything is just as oppressed in some ways as a society that is like our Puritan forebears that disallows people pleasure. Right. (laughs) It's totally extreme. It's insane. So it's a warping of Aristotle's golden mean. And so that is what happens. St. Augustine once said that sin is misordered love. And misordered love is a form of good that has been turned against itself or deranged so that it's a form of evil. And I think that that's what it is. It's an attempt to pursue a certain type of good, but you pursue it in a way that ends up being self-destructive or destructive of others. Let's focus on another story, one of my favorites, because it deals with just this horrible disfigurement of the public's love of athletics, and it's called Team Player. Talk a little bit about that, because I took particular glee in reading this because it sort of focuses on the lionization of athletics and its role in society and turns it on its ear. Well, I'd like to say that the holiest day of the American calendar is Super Bowl Sunday. I think you're right. (laughs) It's one of the few things that unites us. And there's a positively liturgical aspect to it. You go through, you introduce the Hall of Fame inductees, and then you have the national anthem with the God knows how expensive it is military jet flyover. And then you have the coin toss with the specially rendered coin. And all of this is punctuated by the best commercials on television. It really is. It's like a grand religious spectacle. And I was thinking football has had horrible costs and continues to in some ways for the people that play it. And CTE chief among them. And I think that's what it's called. And notwithstanding these terrible physical costs, people continue to celebrate football. And it is fun to watch. I've never played it. But the thing is, is that you're right. It has a strange effect on education in our country where school becomes a kind of pretext for sports. Colleges and universities derive insane amounts of income from sports programs, especially football in many cases. And so it kind of eclipses the purpose of the university in some ways and the high school, depending on where you are. And so the story is about this kid who's a extraordinarily gifted football player, and he's not even a freshman in high school yet, but he's going to be taken onto the team as a freshman and as a quarterback, a starting quarterback. That's how good he is. But he finds out that in order to do this, 
He's about to join the winningest high school football team in America. It's set in, I think, someplace in Ohio. And half the members of the team go on to play Division I in college and then pro football. And it's an extraordinary record, and everybody speaks glowingly of it. Nobody asks, why is this happening? I was like, is it something in the water? Nobody knows why. (laughs) And it turns out it's because the town fathers entered into a pact with Satan to give them good football teams. And every player who joins a team has to have a blood pact. It's like a gang, blood in, blood out. And so the guy finds out he has to sacrifice his girlfriend to Satan in order to be on the team. And the Baptist reverend of his town introduces him to this. They meet in the church, and then they lead him into this basement sanctuary, which is essentially a Satanist chapel with a human sacrifice table in the middle. And he even has drains for the blood. And they kill the victims with a dagger that has the high school emblem on it. So, <laughs> My favorite part of that is that while it's completely crazy, there are parts of culture going back to time where when things were amped up to 11, you could get outcomes like that. And to think that the mania that surrounds sports success and the path out for many people and so on... That's what makes it a good horror story to me. And the fact that it will sort of capture a local community and erase their better judgment sometimes. Yeah. Well, you look at Friday Night Lights and all the different stories around high school football and the importance that it takes in a community. I mean, it's a huge leap to what you're describing, but it's not that far at the same time. I think also one of the things lurking in the back of my mind that may or may not have been an inspiration for this. It probably was subconsciously. It was a story I read about a Texas high school football program in which they started the practices in the dead of summer when it's like 100 degrees out every day. And they have puke buckets next to the field. So if you feel sick, just go puke in the puke bucket and then keep playing or keep practicing. And that just struck me as completely insane and an invitation to a lawsuit. And okay, the puke bucket test. You're not really going to play for the team unless you can just puke and keep going. Never mind the fact that these kids are kids. They're minors. Everybody's like, oh, well, it's a sacrifice for football. The Dead Kennedys have this great song on their Frankenchrist album. I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it's about the crazy football culture of this small town and the sacrifice of the star quarterback who will never walk again because of an injury sustained in a game. But that man gave 100%. He gave us all. And so like a soldier who's been paralyzed in war, we owe him our allegiance. <laughs> no, it's an interesting sketch on sort of Americana gone too far. So those are two of my favorites. Pick out one from the book that you really like, that you think, and I mean, it's tough to choose between your children, all 22 of them, but which one do you think has some impact or is a particularly special one? I like them all for one reason or another. But the one that I really sort of was delighted with when I came up with the idea was extra credit, the first story. That's why I made it the first story, one of the reasons, which is about a serial killer meet and greet for a bunch of crime conventioneers. You know, true crime convention conventions are sort of an odd occurrence in our society. And I have to confess, I'm sort of a, I'm a true crime fanatic. And so what happens is, is this prison warden who superintends one of the most notorious serial killers in American history who happens to be alive. 
Kleber Pillsbury, also known as Hodgepodge, goes to a crime convention and gets people bribe him illegally to have a meet and greet with Hodgepodge. And the reason he's called Hodgepodge is that he took a bunch of his victims and merged them surgically into one sort of like a human centipede, but less linear. (laughs) And then he dumps the living remains off or living result off at a local medical school, which keeps it alive for almost two weeks. And so the warden has these four crime conventioneers show up to meet Hodgepodge. And among them is this dweeby guy. What happens is, is that Hodgepodge asks all of the 20 point test scored on a scale of zero to two. And it determines what, if any, level of psychopathy someone harbors. And I guess anything above 30 means you're really a psychopath. And I guess, if I recall correctly, people in the mid-20s are definitely sociopathic enough to be your average federal felon prison incarceree. And Ted Bundy, who's one of the most notorious and demonic serial killers in American history, was a 38, for example. And so Hodgepodge asks each of the conventioneers what their score was. And the three of the people were like, oh, we're all in the 30s. And it's not clear if they're lying or not. And so he asked this dweeby guy, Melvin, I think his name is, who has custom made a hoodie that he wears with Hodgepodge's face on it. He says, well, what was your score? And he says, well, mine was only a 17. And I had three different psychiatrists administer it. And I got the same score each time. And this is a source of shame for him. (laughs) No one's going to care what your hair test score was. So that's the sort of setup. Cool. So let's wind this up here. What is the best way for people to discover a disgusting supermarket of death? And how do we keep track of the things that you're working on? Well, I have an Instagram page and a Twitter account. The Twitter account is at NovelStay, all lowercase. The Instagram, if I remember correctly, is... Stay Alive GN. And you can get my book at Amazon or Barnes and Noble or a host of other places. And you can check it out on the website of Marcosia, the publisher. Go to Marcosia Enterprises Limited website and look up my last name. And you'll see entries both for a disgusting supermarket of death and our graphic novel, Stay Alive. I'll make sure that that's in the show notes so that people who are interested can look on that as well. Jim, this is a lot of fun. Congratulations on getting the book out and continued success and hopefully Stephen King-like book sales. Hopefully one of the next things you write isn't about how you sold your soul to become a (laughs) multi-million selling author, but I'm excited for you and it's fun to watch this launch. What I was hoping with my soul is that I could like do some kind of like the mortgage-backed securities crisis back in the aughts, maybe what I can do is slice it up into different tranches or property interests and then sell different parts of it to different reigning demons in hell so that I can get multiple favors out of it. I mean, why do you assume that the soul is only one piece of property that can be sold? Why can't it be like a timeshare? (laughs) You may have the grist for a new story right there. Get to the typewriter, get to work on it, big boy. Terrific. Thank you for being on, Jim, and we'll look forward to catching up with you when you get your next book out. Awesome. Thanks very much, Frazier. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.